we could just fade up on the fact that you know it's very hard to find a topic to fade up on the yeah, podcast. That is true. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm always looking for good fade up topics, but because yeah. you want to sound like you're actually talking about something interesting when people tune in. Um, right. Okay. So uh, I'm Tim, and I'm James, and you're listening to QuasiCast, and we've had a bit of a, a break. With this, it's been quite a long time since we did the last one before Christmas and all the crazy things that have happened in the world uh, since then. So with the world going totally crazy, we're going to talk about a crazy subject. Um, we're going to get out our tinfoil hats and uh, our radio antennas and spinning discs, and we're going to risk talking about alien life. Yes, or the lack thereof, potentially. Or potentially the lack thereof. Indeed, we're going to kick off by talking about an article um, that has generated a bit of buzz in the press at the start of this year. Uh, it was published um, at the very beginning of January in the journal Astrobiology. Um, and it had a bit of fame on social media when uh, the press release that was used to announce it uh, was supposed to read... Um, New Oxford University study concludes that intelligent life is rare in the universe, but accidentally printed New Oxford University study concludes that intelligent life is rare in the university. And we'll be debating which one of those uh, summaries of this paper is the more accurate. Yes, very ironic. <laughs> um, okay, well, uh, do you want to uh, summarise briefly... Uh, what this paper claims to have discovered. Yeah, okay, so the title of the paper is The Timing of Evolutionary Transitions Suggests Intelligent Life is Rare. So what it's trying to argue is that they've the, the um, authors of this paper, who are members of a couple of different Oxford University research groups, specifically the Mathematical Ecology Research Group and the Future of Humanity Institute, um, have applied some Bayesian statistical modelling methods to uh, the data we have about the evolution of life on Earth and specifically the steps that were required um, for us to evolve, for intelligent tool-using life to evolve. Yeah. And the uh, conclusion, supposedly, of this statistical analysis is that the probability of life like us, uh, intelligent life, occurring within the lifetime of our star, which uh, I think is approximately, a, is it 10 billion years is what we estimate the lifetime of our star to be, I think? Something like that, yeah. Um, so it, it, it approximates that um, there is a very, very low probability, fractions of a percent chance, that intelligent life would occur on a planet like ours within the lifetime of the star and thereby concludes that earth must be a tremendous statistical anomaly and the vast majority of planets in the universe would not be able to support life and therefore we are likely alone in the universe that's the attestation of yeah. this paper so um james you're you're more knowledgeable about statistics because you well you know something about statistics i'm basically totally ignorant on the subject and it's pretty much your your the main area of your work at the moment um 
what do you think about the statistics that they've used here? Do you think that what they've claimed, the analysis that they've performed and what they claim it can show bears any weight? Yeah, well, I mean, what they're doing is performing a Bayesian analysis of a series of, well, they define to be independent events um, and working out the overall probability of a particular outcome. And there's nothing inherently wrong with the analysis they've done. Um, I haven't gone into great depth as to work out, do the derivations and calculations myself to verify them. But assuming that they have carried out the calculations correctly, the type of analysis they're doing is reasonable. Um, but of course, as we'll come to see, uh, it's only reasonable under the correct assumptions. Or, well, I should go. So I should say that uh, given their assumptions, I'm, I think we should assume that their calculations are correct. Um, so basically, mathematically or statistically, the paper looks right like the, the it's not like this is some crazy uh you know fringe group who are publishing total nonsense like the statistics and the distributions that they've used and the way they've described them makes mathematical sense as far as you're you know willing to investigate yes i think that's a that's a fair assessment of the situation but there's a problem with taking too much from that i i, I guess is what we're leaning towards yes. because to touch so i'm sure we'll get i'll get angrier as we go on but the point one of the the phrases that occurred to me when i read this paper was a, a common phrase in statistics which is garbage in garbage out yes which is the idea that basically if you have a really really good method for analysis you know really sophisticated uses uh, very powerful statistical methods to analyze a set of data, it doesn't matter if your method is good, if the data you're putting into it is crap. Yes, that's that's a fair... And this is a big problem um, in a lot of fields of science that rely very heavily on statistical analysis, especially it's a very big problem in some areas of medical science, because if you have crappy data, it doesn't matter really what analysis you perform on it you can't draw meaningful conclusions and and a lot of the problems that we hear about in terms of uh bad medical science are the result of this yes um classic a classic example that has had a huge impact on the world would be something like the anti-vax movement where the statistical analysis that was used in the paper that first started off the anti-vax movement was not exactly wrong but the data that was put into that methodology and the assumptions that were made about the relationship between data points in that data set were fundamentally wrong. Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, I, I, I guess we should clarify that, you know, you, you didn't imply it, but just in case anyone does, like, is, is, is slightly confused, like, you know, the, the paper itself was... Not only was the fundamental data flawed, but like the analysis itself was flawed as well. And and uh, yes, of course, the the conclusions and the way it was done was it was entirely flawed. Yeah. But the point is that you know that was not uh, some fringe paper published in a nonsense journal. That was published yeah. in the Lancet, I think. Or was it the New England Journal of uh, Medicine? I think it was the Lancet. It was the Lancet because he was British. It was the Lancet. So it was, um, you know, it was it was by a supposedly legitimate academic, and it had the veneer of respectability on it, but it was nonsense. 
And yeah. it's a big problem in science, this veneer of respectability where you have a valid or seemingly valid method, but assumptions and data and conclusions that are totally flawed. Yes. Well, I mean, arguably, yeah, I'd say that's the main source of error, right? Uh, because yeah. often, well, um, the uh, uh, papers, well, I think you've just said this, but, you know, they... and. Papers which are fundamentally flawed can hide behind this sort of technical approach. Um, and I think, I don't necessarily think this paper is an example of you know, an active uh, deception. Uh, I think it's more of a case of just fundamentally flawed premise, um, yeah. uh, which, is, uh, which is a shame. But we'll, 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 I guess we'll get into that. Um, yeah, I think we should maybe start kind of justifying why we think the the premise of this paper is flawed um and i i mean i understand like like you said it's it's not as if this is uh purposefully deceptive or at least as far as we can tell um but the the argument about uh the fermi paradox which is the seeming uh seeming paradox that as far as we know there is nothing special about the earth um it's, it's not particularly unique as far as we're aware. And we should therefore expect alien life to be common in the universe. And yet we observe no evidence of alien life. Um, and it's one of the big questions of physics. And as a result, a lot of people have devoted a lot of time and energy to trying to come up with solutions to the Fermi paradox. And as happens in these very hyped fields... Um, sometimes people just get a bit carried away. Yes. Um, so the core thesis of the paper is uh, constructed uh, on top of an a priori defined argument by another paper or another person uh, called, well, I don't know what is his first name is, but it's referred to in this paper as the Carter argument. Um, uh, do you want to summarise what the Carter argument is, Tim? Um, but the Car Carter argument is a an investigation of the relative probability of life occurring on different timescales. And the argument goes something like this. There are three possibilities for the average um, timescale over which intelligent life appears on a planet like the Earth. Either uh, intelligent life could appear uh, on such a planet over a timescale much less than the lifetime of the planet and its host star. Or the uh, timescale for life to appear could be similar to the timescale uh, to the lifetime of the planet and its host star, or it could be much greater. Yeah. Now, within that window, if we, if we assume that the formation of life and the lifetime of a star are completely independent. They don't share similar processes, so there's supposedly no reason to think that they would be linked in terms of their timescale. So if we assume they're completely independent, then um, we would assume that there is effectively an equal probability of the timescale for the formation of life uh, occurring within any particular uh, equal time window. But in these three possibilities, there, uh, the three possibilities describe drastically different lengths of time. So uh, it happening much shorter 
than uh, the, the, the time scale of the lifetime of the planet and its host star is a relatively short window of time. The, the period where it's a similar length to the lifetime of the star is, is a longer period of time, and it being much longer than the lifetime of the host star, you know, tens or hundreds of billions of years, is a very, very long stretch of time. So the argument then states that the chances of um, these two independent processes, the lifetime of a star and the formation of life, occurring over the same time scale is vanishingly small. Yes. And therefore, life must have, uh, must evolve either at a time scale much shorter than the lifetime of the host star or much longer. And the argument then goes that, well, on Earth, intelligent life didn't form quickly. It didn't form, you know, right after the Hadean period. It took uh, four billion years to form. Therefore, the time scale for the formation of life must be on average, much longer than the lifetime of a sun-like star. And Earth is just very lucky that it just happened that intelligent life appeared before the sun uh, the, before the sun fizzled out and before the Earth was destroyed by uh, its expanding photosphere. Yeah. And as a result, they conclude, and well, from, from this fundamental point, they then try to draw various arguments about um, the probability of different evolutionary processes and then conclude that the likelihood of intelligent life existing anywhere else in the universe is vanishingly small. But there are big problems with this fundamental assumption. The The, the key problem with, with the Carter argument is it's trying to make... Um, it's trying to draw a conclusion about uh, essentially which percentile the Earth falls in, in terms of this time scale for life to evolve, when we only have one data point. And this is the problem with almost all, you know, this is not the first time that people have tried to do this. This is not the first time people have tried to make statistical assessments to assess the probability that life exists. The most famous is uh, the Drake equation. Yeah. Which tries to summarize all of the different components required for the formation of life, and then make a loose estimate, a back-of-the-envelope calculation as to how many alien civilizations there should be but the problem with all of these arguments is we only have one data point we don't know whether the earth is incredibly unusual or absolutely statistically average and anyone claiming that we can make an assumption that the earth is average or rare or, or whatever is flawed and is wrong in making that assumption it doesn't matter how hard you look at it you can't fit a statistical distribution to a single data point. You just can't. No, and that's that's right. The um, uh, no, sorry, you carry on. Well, I was just going to say that the the one of the key assumptions that they make is that the probability of life forming at a timescale much shorter than the lifetime of the sun is vanishingly small because of the fact that it took four and a half billion years for intelligent life to form on the Earth. But we don't know that. We don't know that the Earth, uh, the Earth, the Earth might be very unusual in the opposite respect. It might be one of the rare planets where intelligent life doesn't form within the first billion years, and we have no way of knowing whether that's the case or not. Yes, and I think that other... goes to the core of the assumption of the paper, right? Which is that it has this uh, this Carter argument, and then it later on they make a, like in order to. Uh, 
put in the parameters to the Bayesian analysis, they have to come up with numbers, essentially, mm -hmm. um, to describe how likely a certain thing is in this particular sequence of events. For example, the one of them is the uh, development of... Um, What's it called? Uh, eukaryotic. I can't remember. I can never pronounce that word. Do you know the word I'm talking about? Eukaryotic. Eukaryotic life. Um, yeah. Uh, which is, as you say, uh, we can make estimates based on Earth, which are themselves quite uh, circumspect, shall we say. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but to, but to, 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 to draw any conclusions about any other planet. I mean, I guess the question, of course, or the question that might arise is that, well, you know, we can, using telescopes and various kinds of um, uh, analysis, uh, infer about certain things about other planets. So why is it so unlikely that we uh, wouldn't be able to infer the nature of, say, the atmosphere and the temperature of an exoplanet um, and uh, therefore draw conclusions about its similarities to Earth? And um, I don't know, like, what are the limits there? Um well, we can we can start to do that, and I should point out the caveat that this is a field that neither James or myself work in, although we have both worked with people who do this for for a living at various times. Um, but we can start to do that. We can look out with powerful telescopes, and we can observe planets, and we can even start to map out their atmospheres and determine whether or not they would be capable of supporting life. Um, but there are huge limits still in what we can achieve. Um, the, the, the science of uh, finding and studying exoplanets has really, you know, it's accelerating incredibly rapidly. Uh, it's amazing achievements have been made. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, for a long time, it was assumed that the existence of uh, rocky planets outside of the solar system was rare because when we looked out into the rest of the universe, the only planets that we saw were so-called hot Jupiters, which were very large gassy planets like Jupiter that orbited very close to their host star. But some of the people who were a bit more on the ball about this pointed out that the reason we were observing hot Jupiters is because they're the easiest things to observe. Yes. And this is a big problem, is that the limitations on our instruments mean we have a huge sampling bias where certain types of planets are much easier to observe than others. And we can try to adapt for that, and there are lots of people who do, um, lots of people who are far uh, more intelligent than I am, who spend their lives determining what the sampling bias is for these um, exoplanet detection systems. But the problem is you can't correct for a problem in a, in a statistical distribution. You can't correct for something that you don't know is there. So we can, we can correct for sampling biases that we're aware of, but we can't correct for sampling biases that we don't yet know anything about. No. And, and yes, there are, we've discovered a lot of exoplanets now, an awful lot, but we've still only discovered a, a, really a few hundred exoplanets that are very, very close to us in space. We only know about the tiniest little pocket of space around our solar system i guess the other issue is that the problem is compound right first it's having the uh, uh technology and the understanding to be able to infer the nature of the environment on other planets to a sufficiently precise degree to be able to sort of begin thinking about how life might evolve on those planets mm -hmm. and then furthermore 
Um, even on our own planet, the understanding of uh, the uh, development of life on Earth is is you know it's come on leaps and bounds. I'm sure in 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 in, in recent decades, but um, it's 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 a difficult thing. I think there are still some yeah. pretty core. I think they even mentioned in this paper uh, a couple of core uh, sort of. Can't remember what they were they used to describe them paradoxes um which mm-hmm. are, remain unresolved uh yep. vis-a-vis the creation of life i think one of them um uh is this notion of um eukaryotic life the idea that how did eukaryotic life come to be um you yep. know how did the encapsulation occur um yes yeah. uh, and it's interesting actually one of the things so um I guess maybe this this brings us on to the next major point of criticism for the paper, which is that it suffers a lot from um, an anthropic bias. So there's there's a problem in looking at a system that uh, has certain restrictions on how you observe it and drawing conclusions about how average that system is. So a classic thing would be... Um, uh, a, a, a classic pr- pr- um, argument that might have an anthropic bias is is something that says like oh well you know um, Planck's constant uh, has um, the value of six point six two six times ten to the minus thirty four it could have any value you know who's to say that Planck's constant has to have that value so you know there are infinite possibilities for what Planck's constant could be um, and that means that the universe as we understand it was very unlikely to form. But the problem with that argument is you wouldn't be able to make that argument if the universe hadn't formed. Yes. So yes, you might be able to say, oh, the probability of Planck's constant being this was very small, but it has happened that way. So now the probability that Planck's constant is 6.626 times 10 to the minus 34 is 1. Yes. I would also say that it assumes that the uh, likelihood of all the other numbers that aren't Planck's constant, being Planck's constant, are equal, which is... Why, yes, which is why, also flawed. Why would you say that? <laughs> I know, <laughs> but it's an argument that people genuinely make, especially on the Big Bang Theory, which is just, you know, a wonderful place to look for uh, valid science. But the, the, the where the anthropic bias problem comes in here is one of the core assumptions of this paper is that life in the rest of the universe works the same way that it does on Earth. Yes, which and is and flawed. that's because the only example we have of life forming is on Earth. Yeah. So, but we have no idea whether that is a valid assumption. Again, Earth could be incredibly unusual, and the the way that life has formed on Earth could be incredibly unusual. And one of these things, this point, the thing you pointed out about the development of eukaryotic life, this is one of the big mysteries in our biological history because when we talk about the uh, in, in this paper, they talk about these critical steps, these critical evolutionary steps which are required for the formation of intelligent life, or so so they claim. And a lot of emphasis is put on the formation of intelligent life like humans. But if we actually look at the timeline of the history of the planet, it the Earth formed about 4.5 billion years ago. And for about the first 500 million years, it couldn't support life because it was under constant bombardment from asteroids. The surface was a blasted hellscape and there was no atmosphere of any appreciable kind. That does not sound like a fun time. No, indeed. And it's called the Hadean, which is quite uh, appropriate. Yeah. 
And then from about 4 billion years ago up to about half a billion years ago, the only life on the planet was back, was, was um, prokaryotic, single-celled. Yes. Or for most of that time, rather. It was, it was single-celled. And then um, we, we have the emergence of these eukaryotic cells that are fundamentally different and involve lots of different organelles all working together in a sort of hive organism. And then that compounded, I'm, I'm very sorry if you're uh, a, um, a paleobiologist and you're listening to this, I know I'm butchering it, but this is my understanding. Um, then those eukaryotic cells combined into multicellular organ- organisms, but that only occurred about half a billion years ago. Mm. So by far... If, if we take this idea that we can just look at time periods over which different processes occur, and if a time period is longer, it's less likely, then by far the most difficult step was forming multicellular life. And after that, things kicked off pretty fast yes. in geological time. I mean, we went from the first multicellular organisms forming to having intelligent creatures that can transform their own planet in the blink of a geological eye after that. Mm. I think it's also... Uh worth identifying that uh, definitions of life are the, the the definition of intelligent life that they're using is quite well as you say by the anthrop what did you call it the anthropic the anthropic bias the, by the yeah. anthropic bias is 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 fundamentally narrow um mm-hmm. it's interesting i was uh, listening to uh, or i was i was reading again about the terrifying uh, uh, thing that is uh, bse or pr- uh, prion yep. diseases um, and thinking it's kind of prion diseases are one of these really pushes the boundary so of what is is the definition of alive uh, because yeah. it's uh, and I'm not proposing that this should be included in the definition for this study, but it's just for purposes of, of discussion. Um, the, a prion is uh, it's it's what it is is a it's a disease which is propagated or is caused by proteins that fold in a particular way um but what's what's interesting about them is that they uh, uh they will cause other proteins uh, to fold in the same way misfold um in the same way as themselves um now yeah. obviously a protein doesn't have any sentience um it's it can't be said to be you know, making a conscious choice. But then, of course, you know, neither does a bacteria. But mm-hmm. a bacteria, you know, has a has a set of kind of quite complex biochemical processes that go on that define its existence and, and you know, complex mechanisms that are employed in different contexts in order to leverage itself into reproduction. Um, yep. But a prion... To call, a prion isn't even... It's, it's not even the protein itself... It's, no, it's, it's, it's a pattern encoded into the protein. Exactly. And, it's so extraordinary. And, and, and so it's, you know, I, I like to say, you know, being, being, getting a prion disease is, is like being, uh, getting, being infected by triangles. You know, it's like just you're, you're getting killed by geometry. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's utterly yeah. terrifying. But it, but I, it, it, it does, it does, sorry. It does go, uh, go to, to kind of identify that, you know, there are, the the limits of what you can reasonably call life, and I'm not saying that prions are alive, but like it, it no. I think it illustrates the point that there is, 
a broad range of things that you could include in your definition and to, to suggest that intelligent life is 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 that which is represented by what exists on earth is is quite an assumption yeah. um, i always think a, a prion is uh is kind of like a, a computer virus really because the if you get if your computer is infected with a computer virus it's not that silicon transistors have invaded your computer and attached themselves to it it's that a pattern is being encoded into the existing hardware which causes it to malfunction well i mean it's information the the pattern doesn't exist the pattern doesn't actually exist independent of the host no that's right i mean it's it's... a virus or a bacteria like a, a biological virus or a bacterium is something that exists independent of its host but a prion doesn't yeah that's that's right um the um yeah, it's it's encoded information. Um, yeah, getting a bit sorry, I got a bit distracted there, but no, that's prions right. Um, prions are so fascinating, nice, but it, yeah, nice as you segment. say, it shows that life takes a lot of different forms. And one of the uh, other assumptions in this paper, which plays into this anthropic bias, is that they assume that the formation of intelligent life, i.e., us, was the end result of a linear chain of evolutionary steps. And this plays into a very outdated. I'm sure. I'm sure that that assumption was made in good faith, as a way of approximating a very, very complex problem. But it's interesting because that way of looking at evolution plays into a very, very outdated picture of what evolution is. Yeah. The the old ascent of man picture where. We have this idea that evolution was a linear process that goes from primitive to advanced and that human beings are at the pinnacle of it. And that's just not true. No. Evolution is random variation and any branch of that evolutionary process can prosper and survive and develop in any direction. And evolution doesn't make value judgments about things like intelligence. No, that's true. I mean, I guess, you know, the... uh... The way to view it is that um, evolution leads to, well, I mean, anything more complex than the interpretation that was originally put forth for evolution, which is Mm. that it is natural selection. It's, you know, the process of natural selection, you know, leads to over time uh, a particular species, although that is in turn quite vague um, in sort of modern definitions of uh, of evolution, um, uh, to be able to survive the best that's it yeah um yeah you know, and, and i mean evolution is one of those it, it's it's such a powerful idea but it's also probably one of the most abused ideas in science because as you as you say darwin uh in the origin of the species didn't expound anything more than this very beautifully simple idea of uh natural selection yeah um but as soon as it was published large numbers of people with political and and sociological vested interests took hold of that idea and made it fit their own philosophies, the most famous of which was, of course, Francis Galton. So I think uh, perhaps we can look at the conclusions of the paper and try and uh, come to some kind of conclusion of our own uh, about um, this paper and, you know, its usefulness uh, and whether or not they could have done something better. Uh, So Indeed. I mean, I'll read directly from the... uh, conclusion itself because it 
it's only a paragraph and I think it's uh, worth uh, listening to. So their conclusions are, it took approximately 4.5 billion years of a series of evolutionary transitions resulting in intelligent life to unfold on Earth. In another billion years, the increasing luminosity of the sun will make Earth uninhabitable for complex life. Intelligence, therefore, emerged late in Earth's lifetime. Together with the dispersing timing, uh, dispersed timing of key evolutionary transitions and plausible priors, one can conclude that the expected transition times likely exceed the lifetime of the Earth, perhaps by many orders of magnitude. In turn, this suggests that intelligent life is likely to be exceptionally rare. Arriving at an alternative conclusion would require either exceptionally conservative priors, finding additional instances of evolutionary transitions, or adopting an alternative model that can explain why evolutionary transitions took so long on Earth without appealing to rare stochastic occurrences. The model provides a number of other testable predictions, yada, yada, yada. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's, that's you know, uh, that, that pretty much covers it in terms of uh, what, they, what, they, uh, what they concluded from their research. However, I think it, they, they actually pretty much identify the core problems of their paper in the conclusions. Yes, indeed. They, they point out the fact that the things that would invalidate their conclusions are that they have uh, been ex- excessively conservative in estimating the, um, the, the lifetimes, the, the timescales that they're assuming are average, which we've discussed could well be the case because... As we've said, we only have one data point, and it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't fit a statistical distribution to a single data point. Um, Or that um, there are additional instances of evolutionary transitions. We've discussed the point that intelligent life doesn't have to be human-like. It doesn't necessarily even have to be multicellular. We Again, we know nothing about any other form of intelligent life other than ourselves. Yes. And the final point that... Uh, we would need to explain why evolutionary transitions took so long on Earth without appealing to rare stochastic uh, occurrences. Well, again, that is something that we would be able to explain if we had another sample of it, of life occurring to which we could compare the Earth. But in the absence of that, we simply don't know. And they also point out, as you said earlier in the paper, that there are a number of uh, points along this evolutionary road that they describe where we have no explanation for the time scale over which that occurred. No, and also so, the you know the assumptions of concurrent. They 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 say in the uh, the the conclusion here, um, adopting on what well, the uh, one way of of uh, achieving different conclusions they say is adopting an alternative model uh, uh, that can explain the evolution why the evolutionary transitions took so long, um, and. Uh, their model, uh, well, I guess in their model they assume that they're sequential, which is is uh, is it's fundamentally flawed. They're not. That is the the basis of our modern understanding of evolution, is that it is not a linear sequence of events. Yes, leading to more advanced life. Yes, and when when you when you remove that, uh, the entire of their analysis breaks down. Um, yeah, and I think that pretty much covers it, really. So in um, short, well, how do you want to? soundbite the paper james yeah i I think this is just another example of of something we saw before um with our uh um uh, anthropogenic mass paper which is that the intentions of the people writing the paper i'm sure were pure um and the risk the the analysis they've done and the assumptions that they've made um 
are not inherently wrong because you can you can you can as long as you state your assumptions and you perform your analysis correctly and then the conclusions that you you that you draw or like the results that you have are are correct because the analysis you've done assuming those particular assumptions is correct um there's nothing inherently wrong with that and if you look at their um conclusions as we've just seen they go out of their way to identify that if you were to assume different uh, assumptions um, or take different assumptions or use a different model, um, then you could get a different answer. The, con- the concern is that um, the t- title of the paper is Timing of Evolutionary Transition Suggests that Intelligent Life is Rare. Is That doesn't gel with what they've written in the paper. Like, no. And... It's, 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 it's just, I, I, I don't really see, I, I guess it's, it's a twofold problem. It's first that the paper is, it has been advertised for its, its, uh, its title and also its abstract slightly, um, to be something that it isn't. Uh, but furthermore, because of that, um, the media has then picked it up as being something yeah. that it isn't. Um, and it creates this kind of snowball effect where you end up with something which is quite conservative in in its actuality in its statement in the paper when you read the conclusions and everything they they go out of their way to make clear the assumptions and the caveats um but when it's been rolled out on the press or or, or to the wider world uh, that just gets lost completely yeah and it should be pointed out that uh when science enters the public sphere, it often ends up being uh, distorted based on people's previous prejudices and assumptions. But one of the key skills that you're expected to develop as a scientist is the ability to anticipate that. And the and of course, you, you can't control what someone else writes about your work. But you can, through your title, through your abstract, try to at least place some control on that and i don't know whether it's deliberate or not i mean everyone just tries to do you know frame their research in the best light possible but i feel like this paper was almost courting controversy uh yes i mean if i'm honest i actually disagree that like when you read the the actual text the content like of the paper as we well we haven't read it now but you know the they they don't they're quite explicit about their assumptions right it's not like they're trying to obscure the assumptions that they've made um and the method is quite again explicit um and the conclusions that they draw whilst the assertion at the top of the conclusion is in my mind too strong the where they say uh, uh together uh, it was was the actual statement um yeah this this sentence here in turn this suggests that intelligent life is 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 likely to be exceptionally rare now that statement if you take it purely in the context of the previous analysis that so you know you say if you if you prepend that sentence with given all of these assumptions our analysis implies life is exceptionally rare and that is a true statement um it is tr- but, a true but, statement, but the problem but then they no, title the paper they sh- title the paper the timing of evolutionary transition suggests intelligent life is rare yeah no that's true i guess i my can uh, it's it, yeah I, I guess it's the it's the i don't know i i it's not titled you know it's not titled a uh bayesian analysis of um 
evolutionary transitions assuming an Earth-like case or no, some, that's, something like that. That's right. No, no, no that's true. Um, I guess I, I'm just remembering times that I was in the room when, you know, we'd written a paper and, and the person who was responsible for having the final say on what the title was going to be um, was happily... You know, waxing lyrical about uh, mm-hmm. imaginary monsters that we seem to have discovered yeah. uh, when, in fact, I, I there was no exactly such thing. What talking about. And so, I guess all I want to do is is make the listeners aware of the fact that it's not. Sure. You know, the 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 writers on a paper are not a monolith. And if I had to suspect what actually happened here is that, you know, some poor uh, uh, PhD slash postdoc was said uh, was given the task of actually doing the research. Which they did yeah. reasonably well, like given yes. the context, like the the obvious kind of frame framing of the pa- of the paper, the question, the original question of the paper, because you can't really come up with precise like numbers on things like the the quantities that we've described. Um, yeah. But then, yes, at some point down the line, they were like, "Oh, let's put this a jazzy title," and boom, yes. there you go. And um, the thing is that you know, um, not to cast aspersions on specific people but two of the authors of this paper are from the future of humanity institute at the at the university of oxford and the future of humanities institute has form when it comes to reporting very radical conclusions from extremely limited data and and as you say the analysis here is actually quite sophisticated but the fhi have most famously uh, reported to uh, a number of different news outlets at the same time um, re- released a press, uh, uh, made a press release stating uh, that the probability that human beings will be made extinct by 2050 is uh, 10% or something in that region. And uh, the methodology that they used to come to that conclusion was laughable. Yes. Not just, not just uh, flawed, unbelievably ridiculous and laughable and they also compounded the problem by keeping their methodology extremely secret and not discussing it openly with the media outlets to whom they reported it mm. so i'm sure that you're right the the authors are not a monolith a monolith but the hand of the fhi in this paper makes me um more inclined to view it as i don't want to say anything libelous <sighs> I, I, I think the FHI has made a bit of a habit of, of exaggerating their conclusions to get in the in the news. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree This feels with that. a bit like that. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, I don't disagree with that at all. Uh-huh. So maybe uh, it would be interesting just to quickly, for the, you know, as, as we move towards the end, just talk a bit, because a bit about um, SETI, because it's one of the biggest questions in science and you know every scientist from you know from from here to to hoku university has an opinion on it so yeah well what are our interestingly they uh, had a had a bit of a seti moment as as happens every sort of like two or three years where they uh, say oh we've detected a signal from i think actually mm-hmm. recently it was a signal from uh, from quite close right wasn't it uh, proxima centauri yeah. Um, yeah this is that that um, was quite an exciting point it, it something that appears to have hallmarks of a, an artificial signal i mean of course the caveat exists that this is far from the first time that such a signal has been observed i should point out that um, it's not they don't just seti doesn't describe such measurements as artificial signals no they describe them as 
anomalous signals. Well, I don't know if that's the yes. exact language, but what they mean, they, some, to be considered as something worth investigating is uh, something which does not fit an existing pattern where we yeah. can explain it by other means, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's it's an unusual signal. It's emerging from a system where we're pretty sure there's a planet. Um, isn't it? It's it's coming from Proxima Centauri, isn't it? Did you just I say that? I did just say that. Sorry. How yeah, dang. so it, it, it's a system where we're pretty sure that there is a planet. So it raises a very interesting question. Um, and yeah, the, there have been many such signals uh, that have been anomalous and then have later been explained as something completely natural but the you know the uh, uh, the fact there's a signal in the past has been explained as natural does not mean this one will be explained as natural it, that is that is indeed the gambler's fallacy uh, I, and, I, and we shouldn't fall into it i guess uh, what's interesting to think about when you're talking about seti because we should describe uh, what seti actually is i mean seti is a program of using radio telescopes to listen for signals coming in from the wider galaxy slash universe um <laughs> And yeah, sort of ascertaining whether or not those signals come from intelligent life. Uh, you know, the equivalent would be some kind of radio transmission um, occurring from an alien planet. Um, I, I I think what would be interesting to uh, to think about or is is why what are the problems with that model of alien yeah. detection? Um, you know, what assumptions does it make? I mean, the first one I'll, I'll start. Um, is that, um, well, it doesn't make this assumption, but it relies on uh, the fact that, you know, alien species, if they transmit, transmit continuously for reasonable periods of time. Um, because uh, I think one of the more common sort of theories about uh, development of um, civilizations is that there's actually typically a very short window where they broadcast uh, unidirectional radio transmissions yeah. um, for the reason that it's just inefficient. There are more effective ways of transmitting data. One is through, well, fiber optic cables, and if you have to do it through the air, through uh, directional sort of coherent uh, radiation beams, lasers. Yeah, why would you waste all that energy by pissing it out into space? Exactly. So it, it sort of creates this, uh, you can imagine um, uh, a civilization, if, if this is true, which it's quite reasonable to assume that it is, um, then the 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 radio waves uh, or the sort of the the time over which they uh, transmit radio waves in a uni, sort of a unidirectional manner is quite short and what you end up with is a kind of shell of information that expands from the planet in question out into all yeah. directions in space um and that shell is incredibly thin um yeah. you know at the order and if you don't happen to be looking in the right direction when it passes you you'll miss it exactly so if that's true, it great is you know something, you know a, a planet that there could be aliens on Proxima Centauri, right? Uh, and and which is is pro, is the closest star uh, to this star, um, yeah. Uh, not on the star, obviously, on the planet that is orbiting around that star. Yes. Um, the although <laughs> I mean the idea of like uh, uh, aliens that live uh, in. Uh, magnetospheres of stars is not completely outside the realm of possibility. It was the subject of a great science fiction book called um, Sundiver. Anyway, um, the yeah. um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, if if the idea, I, I don't know what this is called. This idea that there's this shell, hollow shell of information. I think there must. Be I've some... heard it. I've heard it given a number of different names. I've yeah. heard it called the 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 lighthouse model is one yeah. thing because it's analogous to a a lighthouse beam sweeping past you, and if you if you aren't looking at it when it goes past, then you would never know that it was there. Yeah, and and so the idea um, is that you know you could have there could be an an intelligent civilization of of, of aliens on Proxima Centauri who just came to prominence a few hundred years before we developed um, uh, radio detectors uh, and, yep. and, and and have since been happily going about their business using directional uh, uh, transmitters. Of course. And of course, there's also the possibility that um, uh, the majority of civilizations uh, that are advanced to the level that we would call them intelligent don't last for very long. Uh, either they go extinct or they... Um, don't continue in a way that we can recognize them. Yeah. I think uh, I, I, I think it's very probable that humanity will look nothing like it does now in even a few thousand years' time. Yeah. Um, if, that is, we survive, of course. Um, but with the way our technology is developing, if we are to survive the next thousand or two thousand years, I don't think there's any reason to say that we would look and behave and transmit data in the way that we do now. No, and one of the great problems with this sort of thing is is just, and it, it speaks to the paper that we just talked about, which is that it's incredibly difficult to put yourself, you know, in the mind of, of a non-human species. Yes. I mean, I, I guess there's other kind, like, I guess you can imagine, you know, many of us have pets and sometimes you can anthropomorphize pets, but the key word there is anthropomorphize, like to really know the mind of your dog to really like to, to, to step back and say, well, actually all of those reactions that it's having aren't really thinking like a human. Yes. Um, Cause there's no reason to believe that that's the case. Um, yes. Why would we believe that uh, alien species wants to uh, communicate using a long distance communication network? Um, why would we assume that they would encode information in those signals? Like we do, you know, we're, we're assuming that if we observe a signal, um, that's switching off and on and looks like binary encoded information, um, that it will be artificial. But how do we know that they don't encode information in polarization, yeah. for example, which we are not searching for? One of my uh... Also, you know, things like the reason we use radio waves is because there's a radio window in our atmosphere where absorption is very low. But even relatively small variations in atmospheric chemistry could fundamentally change that and alien species may use different frequencies yes i quite like the idea as well of uh you know this notion requires that intelligent life develop um technology right this uh, you know harness mm. harness whatever it may be to to sort of create signals that you can amplify to the uh to the to the to the strength such that it can you know cross distances of interstellar differences whilst maintaining a sufficient intensity such that it can be detected at the other end um yeah whereas you know what if this intelligent life is is slime mold, but the slime mold which has developed, you know, intelligence exactly. I mean, there's really yeah. no reason to believe that's not the case. Like it's it. Well, we know we know of hive mind systems that exist on Earth. Yeah. So that is clearly a valid route towards intelligence. Yes, and again, speaking, going like harking, speaking, pointing back to making reference back to the paper that we talked about. <laughs> You know, this, it's, it's the, it just, it, 
their definition of intelligent life is so very reductive narrow. that it's yes. borders on point completely meaningless. I mean, I guess you yes. could say, like, really, what they're saying is, uh, we've done a calculation. The chance of human beings yeah, exactly. existing elsewhere <laughs> in the universe exactly. is very low. Like, yeah, the star, star, Stargate would like to hear. You know, maybe they, maybe they, you know, they haven't included the possibility that an yes. ancient race of uh, gold seeded other planets with humans. <laughs> um, which uh, it's not. It's not going to be like Star Trek. We're not going to go out and just find a whole bunch of, uh, you know, bilaterally symmetric four-limbed people with bumps on their foreheads. No, no, that's true. Um, which I think that is a fair conclusion. If that's their conclusion, <laughs> then I'm totally down with that. Yeah. But life is incredibly diverse, even on this planet. Yeah. And assuming that it would look the same everywhere else and follow the same rules, it's just fallacy. And, I mean, there are reasons to... I, I've noticed recently that there's been this decided shift where it, it used to be that the, the standard... Uh, assumption that most scientists made was it's almost certain that inte- intelligent life exists somewhere else in the universe and we just haven't found it yet yeah. and i've noticed over the past few years that that shifted and maybe it's part of this kind of pessimism of our age that it's quite attractive to people to believe that we're alone in the universe but i don't think that there's anything in the science that's changed to make people draw the opposite conclusion I, I i just we haven't advanced enough in our understanding of things like abiogenesis we we don't have any more information now really than we did 10 years ago when everyone was busily expecting aliens to be right around the next rock no no um uh, just as a slight side note um i like the idea that uh, we could set up a new seti that uses um gravitational wave detection uh, that's an interesting thought you know because i mean yeah. obviously you know that no one's going to be uh you know t- t- booking time on the on the uh what's it called the the device they detected the uh gravitational waves uh ligo li- yeah no one's going to be booking time on ligo to uh to listen for aliens but um <laughs> the uh the the notion that you know they, they're looking at building a bigger one in space which i think is really cool um yeah and a whole that so lidar basically well we, we can not lidar that's what I work on. LIGO. LIGO. Um, yeah. LIGO is uh, a, a device, um, well, it's actually three devices uh, on the, in America, um, which use, uh, are used to, to detect uh, waves, ripples in space-time um, uh, caused by uh, the movement of large objects very, very far away. Um, and it's... Uh, it's it's fascinating. They, I think was it the previous Nobel Prize was awarded for the discovery of gravitational waves or or the measurement. Uh, I think it was. Yes, yeah. I think it was last year. And, and, and you know, in my mind, it yeah. was it was amazing. It's one of the great discoveries in science, really, on a par with you know all the. It's extraordinary. Just yeah, truly, it's, it's truly amazing. Um, but yeah, this notion that um, perhaps you know, perhaps there's a there's a there's a group of um, of. Uh, or a species of alien that are developed to the point where they can, you know, manipulate matter on a on a sort of solar system level, and are somehow, yeah. you know, uh, uh, or or just that they, you know, that gravitational waves could even be a method of communication. I mean, it's one of the things that bothers me about this whole discussion, this very pessimistic discussion, is it seems to require quite a, a high level of arrogance. 
you know, we assume that, oh, well, human beings have developed the best way of communicating. We've developed the best way of colonizing space. We've developed the best way of encoding information. And no other species in the universe could possibly do it differently to us. Yeah. And, and we don't know that. Maybe once we understand more about gravitational waves, we'll realize, oh, my God, why did we ever use electromagnetism to communicate? Obviously, gravitational waves are better. Yeah. We, we just don't know. No. And... Uh, to put on a tinfoil hat for a second, because I feel like we have to a little bit, um, given the subject matter, but one of the kind of grander scale things that has been done with SETI is trying to look for um, galactic scale evidence of life. And the theory basically goes that if you um, if you assume that there have been uh, stars that are similar to the sun that, that you know could potentially support life to similar to how we understand it some of those stars have been around billions of years longer than the sun yes and if life uh, emerged on one of those planets then it would have uh, intelligent life then it would have uh, it would be billions of years older than us and billions of years potentially more advanced quote unquote in in terms of technology so we would expect in the universe for there to be at least a few galaxies that show signs of galactic scale civilization. Mm-hmm. And there was a study a few years ago where they looked at the Hubble galaxies in the Hubble Deep Field and and they looked at they looked for um, evidence of any kind of distortion of its spectrum or any kind of distortion of um well, it, it's an EM spectrum, basically, that might be evidence of aliens harvesting, you know, um energy from black holes yep. on a massive scale or energy or building billions of Dyson spheres or whatever. And the conclusion from the paper was very odd because some some newspaper outlets reported it as we've discovered intelligent life because some galaxies had weird signals that couldn't be explained. And other outlets said, oh, we've proven that there's no such thing as intelligent life. But the question I always wanted to ask the people who did that study is, how do you know that every galaxy you observe doesn't have something weird going on because if every galaxy had been modified you wouldn't know would you no no that's right and and there are so many things that are weird about galaxies that we don't understand like there are a number of galaxies that have been observed in the last two years that just don't seem to have dark matter and we have no idea why yes which is and and no no one's talking about that in in with respect to seti and i'm sure that astrophysicists and cosmologists have their ideas about why that's the case and and that alien life is way down the list of possibilities but it should at least be part of the conversation yeah cool well i think that's a pretty good uh overview of um yeah why that paper was flawed um and yeah some of the more interesting topics um in uh, in seti and the search for extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life indeed mm. well you know i mean we can just cross our fingers that in a week's time we'll both look really stupid because of, we'll have had this conversation and then aliens will have landed by the end of next week and well we won't look stupid we'll look <laughs> well, we'll look no. we ent- yes indeed we entertain the possibility yes we did or maybe you know God will show up and say there is no such thing as aliens and then vanish in a puff of logic. We should probably also uh, uh, include the possibility that the writers of the paper are in fact aliens and are trying to uh, hide their existence. Now there's a theory. Yeah. I Yes. 
gosh, that puts a new spin on things. <laughs>